Welcome to the Semi-Interesting Podcast, where we explore some of the unique legal issues in the global semiconductor industry. My name is Nathaniel Lusak. I'm an IP attorney at the law firm of Hodgson Russ and one of your hosts. I'm Elizabeth Morris. I'm an IP attorney and director of intellectual property and products at Pure Storage in Mountain View, California, and I am one of your hosts. Today, we're going to be talking about artificial intelligence. And artificial intelligence is making headlines both in the legal industry and the semiconductor industry. The semiconductor industry recently, one of the big manufacturers was caught feeding confidential information to train an artificial intelligence. And then I read recently that a law firm was trying to use artificial intelligence for prior art searching, testing how that's going. To help us make sense of everything that's going on, Elizabeth and I brought in someone a little bit more expertise than both of us, uh, David Sanker from Morgan Lewis. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. My background actually is very odd for someone who is a patent attorney because I actually initially I got my PhD in mathematics and then taught mathematics for three years. And then I actually spent 12 years in software development. wasn't doing AI, but I was doing software development on large-scale systems. And it was only after that, after 12 years of that, that I uh, went to law school. Uh, and then I have been a patent uh, attorney and, and dealing a lot more with artificial intelligence recently. David, we're so happy to have you here. I know you and I have been talking on and off a little bit about AI for a long time, but it's recently become just something that everybody talks about. I mean, even just yesterday, I spent an hour chatting with a colleague about what are we going to do about ChatGPT and how is this going to affect us? So, um, especially for ChatGPT, is this something that companies need to be thinking about in planning for their future? Yes, and and that's actually a really important question. I mean, ChatGPT is very much in the news. And part of the question is, is this just hype? Is it something that's going to go away? Or is it something we really need to uh, adapt to? And and the answer is that we need to be moving in that direction to be dealing with ChatGPT and other things like it. It's not as good as it's hyped up to be right now. And I think that the, one of the difficulties with that is that some of us might be lulled into thinking, oh, well, it's just something that's going to go away. And actually, I uh, and as an example of why it's not there right now is that sometimes these large language models, they provide information which is not necessarily correct, but also the, the language that's used comes across with having confidence. And so as people, we're, we're sort of lulled into thinking, oh, well, the machine is that confident. It must be right. And it's not. And, and so that we have to be very careful about that. But that's the state right now. And the point is that these systems are growing in complexity and accuracy very quickly. So I think rather than thinking about where it is right now, we need to be thinking about where it will be in the future. And we need to be thinking about that and moving in that direction right now because it will be important. And here's a couple of reasons why it will be important. It's because these systems can automate a lot of tasks that we are currently uh, requiring people to do. And so a person can actually leverage something like ChatGPT to make their job more efficient. And so we want to be thinking about how we can leverage uh, these AI systems to make our jobs more efficient. The second part of that, which is um, 
what Nathaniel brought up was it's like we got to be very careful about releasing our confidential information to these chat GPT systems that are just using our own data to uh, and ingesting that to train the models for the future. It's like, well, we don't really want to give away company secrets to a general system. So we have to think about ways that we can leverage this for our own use, but not give away our information to others. And I think at least one way that will happen is that these systems will be will be able to get in the future instances of the system that are sort of locked down into your environment so that's like it's not going to be uh, uh shared with anybody else and i think that's like we need to make it clear to the people who are providing this we need that we need to be able to use these without risk of our own data going out to others and so I think we need to be thinking about that process and moving toward that because we absolutely want to use it, but we want to use it in a way that is uh, secure. So you've obviously been writing about artificial intelligence for a while. Beyond what you just mentioned, what's what's the status of artificial intelligence? What what it's what are its capabilities? What are people using it for today, and why is this important? Artificial intelligence today has has gotten far more advanced than it, it was uh, recently. So, and there's there's a lot of ways in which artificial intelligence can be utilized, and and one of those that I see is in the context of inventions as well as works of authorship. And we've seen some of this, like in terms of AI systems generating artwork or generating text. And there was a recent case of. AI-generated artwork, uh, and I think it was entered in a competition in Colorado, and uh, they didn't point out that it was artificial intelligence generated, and it won the competition. And I looked at the art, and it's quite good. I mean, it's 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 not surprising that it won, but it's like, and now of course that bothers some people, but it's like, well, it, it's not like we can ignore AI. AI is able to generate these things, and it's you know it's a very good quality. So it's uh, rather than creating a battle uh, between people and artificial intelligence, it's more of a question of like, how do we leverage the artificial intelligence to make, uh, essentially to make us better at whatever it is that we are doing. And part of that requires us to understand better how we can use that and sort of, sort of retrain ourselves. That's like, okay, now we've got these systems that can do this. So my focus is in, in my work is in inventions that we're going to patent. And and that's an area that's, you know, historically it's like, well, it's like it's gotta be humans that are inventing it. And the and in fact, it was more than three years ago when I saw the first filing on on behalf of an artificial uh, intelligence inventor and said, oh, this this was an invention. It was they in the application themselves, they said, oh, this was created by this artificial intelligence system. And we've given this artificial intelligence system a name, and it created this. And and so as soon as you do that, you, you, you look at the law and you say, well, the law is actually pretty clear right now. And the law is that uh, only human inventors are, are allowed. And so uh, I wrote about that even before there's any ruling on that. And since then, we have had lots of rulings by the patent office uh, or a federal court as well as the federal circuit all confirming exactly what i said you know three and a half years ago which was that yeah we have to have real people inventing 
okay, so that's the state of the law as it is is currently, and that brings up two issues. One is, well, is that the way we think it should be permanently, or should it change? And there's certainly a lot of reasons to think that it should change, because artificial intelligence is getting better and better, and it is an essential element in inventions. And uh, I've seen this a lot, for example, in new drug discovery or drug repurposing. It's like, you've got billions of drugs to use, and it's like, how do you select them? Uh, and so the use of artificial intelligence is essential. It, it seems like it would be uh, counterproductive to the see the Constitution said about the promotion of the sciences and useful arts. Well, we kind of want to promote these new drugs, and therefore, it, it seems likely that there's there's reason to think that we might allow this in the future. Uh, but that has some difficulties because right now. Uh, at least two co uh, important difficulties are with how does something created by AI assign their rights to somebody? That's so it's like, well, it's a system. How does it assign rights? And the second question is like, well, how would it sign a declaration that I invented this? Uh, you know, a, a human has to say, I, I invented this. And you have to make that declaration on penalty of perjury where you might spend time in jail. It's like, well, an AI system has no concept of that. So how do we deal with that? And if we want to make this change, then one of the things that I have recommended is that like, we really need to be able to, uh, would have to modify the law in order to allow some person to act as essentially as a surrogate on behalf of the AI system to sign an assignment or a declaration. So something like that would need to be in, in place that a, a person is actually saying, yes, we assign these rights, and yes, this, this system actually did, did create this. Um, so that's the future. So uh, another important question is, well, what about right now? Let's suppose you're using AI systems to in your inventive process. How can you make sure that you're able to get a patent for this? You want to be able to protect your, your patent rights. So uh, if you can protect it by a trade secret, then you don't have a problem because you just protect it as a secret. Okay, so that, that's one, one way of getting around this. It's like, okay, it's like, okay, it's secret, so we don't tell anybody. But if you need a patent, uh, in particular, if, if your invention is publicly visible, then you probably would want a patent. And, and the, the key thing is you better make sure that there is a, a human involved in some significant Way. It's like you want to have a non-trivial contribution by at least one human inventor, and then you can file an application listing the inventors as being being the humans. So that's that's what we need to do right now. And there's an open question here is like, will that be enough? Because there was a recent ruling in a copyright case where uh, an author wrote the text of a book, but had an AI system generate some images that were used in that book. And the copyright office said, you can get a copyright on the text, but you can't get a copyright on the whole thing that includes the images. So those images had to be excluded. And uh, I worry that if that same model is applied to inventions, there could be a problem because an invention say, has 
element A, B, C, and D. And so if an AI system invented parts C and D, and we have to exclude those, well, then A and B might not be an actual invention. And so that's something I'm concerned about. We don't have a ruling on that yet. And I don't know how a court might rule, but that, so to be safe, you certainly want to make sure you have at least one inventor. Uh, and that's the best we can do for right now until we get to, until we get a ruling on that. So that's, that's the, uh, the, the issues going on. That's so interesting. I mean, I was following this copyright case and it was just fascinating to me that they kind of came down on this line of saying, you know, no, the images can't be protected because it seems to me that that uh, user spent a fair amount of time coming up with the right queries to make the images that he wanted to see that uh, illustrated his his comic book, right? Right. And so, you know, and I know we're already seeing um, people posting or, or uh, looking for query engineers, right? People that get good at creating the right kinds of query. And, and that seems to me, to me, very similar to what a photographer does with a camera. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, where is that line? It's just, it's just kind of fascinating. So yeah, yeah. Actually, let me let me make, let me make one comment on that too. And 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 one of the things that I thought was kind of odd about that uh, decision was that right now, uh, so for example, if I need to, let's suppose I write a book and I need somebody, uh, it needs some images for it. I can make, I get a work made for hire by a person and I can get a copyright on that. And so in that sense, it seems a little odd to say, well, why can't I have a work made for hire by an AI system and then get a copyright there? And I'm sure, you know, the thing is slightly different, but I, uh, it seems like the work made for hire methodology seems to make sense here. So I just kind of thought it was an interesting decision. And in a sense, it's the first decision. It could change. Uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll see more. I'm interested to see how that comes out. I mean, another fundamental question that I have kind of going back to your drug related question is like, OK, so if the AI is choosing between these, you know, thousands of versions of drugs and then the company is going to the trouble of of testing and, uh, you know, getting through FDA approval and all this other significant effort, if that company can't have some exclusive rights on it, then they just aren't going to make the drugs. And that's bad for everybody. Right. So I just wonder Something you said, and I just want to um, button it down because it was interesting to me. So, so patent law says that you have an inventor, one of the inventors on an application has to have contributed to at least one element of a claim. So is it your theory that if a human contributed one element, that that would be enough to kick it over? Or um, I think what you said, and I just wanted you to kind of dig into this a little bit more, all elements that weren't provided by humans would be disregarded and then the only thing that would be left is is it patentable in and of itself the things that are left right you, you hit on exactly the the right question and i'm not actually sure of what the answer will be because i could make logical arguments both ways you could say well you didn't invent those things therefore you can't claim them but on the other hand you could say well but a person you know generated these aspects which which then were say input to the um uh, to the ai system for generating these other aspects i i think it's a very close call and i think different different people could come to different uh conclusions on that and and so in, until something is codified in law I, I think we could easily get conflicting uh, opinions. And I think it's actually at some point in the future, 
there will be a case like this that goes to court. And if it's a high profile enough, like if it's a big pharmaceutical company suing a competitor, you know, for, you know, a billion dollars, uh, regardless of the result, it will, it will probably be more prompting to cause our, uh, our Congress to actually act on it. But I think it'll take something big like that to actually force Congress to make a decision. And then it becomes, and once they do it, then it becomes a policy decision. What do we think makes sense? Uh, uh, in, but before that, I think it's a, it's a close call on which way it'll go. So I have been talking about AI, you know, to some degree in a, in patents or even in patent claims, like if, you know, there was some sort of like AI assisted analysis that you put into the claim, right. And you say, oh, that, you know, this part is done with AI. So what is it that makes things different right now? You know, is it just that like chat GPT is making a splash in the news or has there been kind of like some fundamental technological breakthrough or, you know, what's so special about AI today versus like a year ago? Oh, yeah. Well, actually, I, I would say it, it's probably better better comparison to say, well, what's the difference between AI today versus, say, 40 or 50 years ago? And, and, and there, it really is technology. So like when I was back in my PhD program in the, in the 1980s, there wasn't the um, processing power and there wasn't the uh, storage capacity. And, and so both the high-speed processing and the storage capacity have, have really made a, a fundamental difference in terms of what can be done. And so as that has evolved, the essentially a lot of the algorithms we're using today have been known for decades, but they're able to do much more just because uh, we got you know, processors and, and the storage capacity, we can, we can store terabytes or whatever the next, you know, what's the next, or the next biggest thing is, uh, you can store and access these, these vast amounts of data and the processors are able to process uh, in large quantities in parallel, huge processing. And, and so, uh, so that has, has made a, a, a big difference and that's going to continue. You know, we're going to have even even more storage capacity, even faster processors, and, and so this will continue. And and I think it's useful to kind of analogize that with uh, just comparing um, human intelligence to say another animal. Uh, it's like, well, what's the difference? It's like, well, we all have neurons, we you know, all have a brain, but it's like, well, but a human brain has dramatically more both neurons and connections between neurons, and that's what makes us you know, actually you know, more intelligent than, than other, other animals. So that's, that's, uh, that's, that's what the difference is. So as we head toward the Star Trek future where you just simply mention that you have the Rigelian plague and you're, you need a cure for it and the computer then spits it out, you've touched a lot about inventorship as being an issue, but how else is artificial intelligence affecting IP protection? For example, how, how, is, it, how is it being examined today? At the patent office, right, and because this this is this is a big deal because today, depending upon the particular examiner that's assigned to a given application, uh, one examiner may may find the just killer art and like uh, can't get that patent, and and somebody else might not, and therefore issue a a patent. So in in terms of the uh, patenting. What we really need that is to have the patent office utilize AI in terms of both identifying relevant patent art 
and it can also use it to evaluate the claims to identify clarity and and also even even apply all of the rules about patentability uh, that an an AI assisted patent examiner could do a better job than just a patent examiner alone. And and the other advantage we'd have for for that is that it would increase consistency because so now rather than being a sort of an accident of who happens to be looking at this and what that person's opinion is, uh, we could we could get something that's 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 more more consistent. And actually, the the U.S. Patent Office is very interested in uh, in AI both for how it can be used as well as how do, how does it affect examination? Um, how does it affect, um, for example, what you consider a person of skill in the art? I mean, historically, that's just been you know people. But it's like, well, but what if the norm is now becoming that everybody is using AI? So that has to affect what you define as your ordinary skill in the art. We shouldn't just say, oh, well, let's ignore those AI systems. It's like, well, they're real. Uh, they're being used. So actually, just recently, uh, the USPTO put out a request for comments uh, regarding AI, and, and this, in this case, specifically dealing with AI in inventors. Uh, so they had, have a bunch of good questions. So they are very interested in in this. Uh, and I actually have a, a, a team of uh, students working with me on to, to for, uh, for answering some of those uh, those questions, because I think it, they're, they're trying to get input saying uh, they, they're not assuming that they know everything and say, well, let's get some input from uh, people about how to use it. So I think it's, it's AI is not only in terms of the, on the inventor side, but it's also in terms of on the tool side, well, what can the USPTO use? How can the USPTO use, use AI to, to make the examination both better and more efficient? Because sometimes trying to find the right art is hard. Uh, because it can depend a lot in terms of, well, are you using the correct terms? And different art may use different terms. But if it's with an AI system, if you're kind of if it's able to analyze an invention more conceptually, then the specific words are not critical. And so, so that's a pretty pretty valuable thing, to have, I think. And then, uh, why well, on that subject too? It's like, well, and and AI is actually being used in many other ways too and and uh i've seen this ai being used say like employers using this in in a hiring process and and the question is well should they place should there be some limits placed on that because well what if, what if you have an ai system that's actually very good at identifying lying so you use this system and, and it's able to evaluate the video of your interview with a candidate and you're able to determine that, oh, that looks like our, our AI system says, you know, this person's probably lying. Can you use that? Should you use that? Uh, what if the AI system is wrong? So uh, uh, states are, are enacting various laws to, uh, you know, put, put controls on that. But you can also use AI just in terms of, say, monitoring employees in the workplace. You know, look, you know, when you're in a workplace, and you're sitting at your computer, you kind of feel it's like, oh, it's just me and my computer. Reality is that you're, you don't have any uh, expectation of privacy when you're at your own computer at work. Uh, the, you're working for the company. The company has the right to you know, inspect and look at everything. And it could be done in real time. 
And, and so the company could be monitoring your data in real time and saying, oh, make, let's make sure that what the person is doing is, is okay. And, and it could be for, you know, they could be monitoring for whatever it is. I mean, it could be looking for, you know, violations of laws or they could be looking for just violations of, of our policy. So there's, there's lots of ways that uh, AI could be used. And, and then, of course, just without going into detail, but it's like certainly in terms of a social environment or, or a political environment, you know, using AI systems to, say, evaluate, uh, you, know, you, you know, you could, given enough data about a person, you probably can figure out what their political leanings are, and you can use that to target people. AI systems can definitely identify and exploit uh, our, our, our characteristics. So that's, that's, those are sort of things that I, you know, there's some good and some bad, and that's like we just have to be thinking about that because of the use of AI systems in all these contexts is going to going to increase. One thing I was chatting with uh, my husband about the other day actually was when we interview people for jobs now um, in today's society, a lot of times those first interviews are over Zoom, right? But it would be very easy for somebody to have sort of a side computer or the same computer where they're feeding those interview questions in and getting, you know, better prompts, better responses than maybe they could come up with on their own. So there's this concern that maybe all interviews in the future need to be done in person to make sure that you're and maybe they're even talking to a human. Right. I, there's you know, they could be have some sort of augmented version of themselves. But then so that's one side of it. But then the other side to me is like. So if I interview somebody and I'm actually expecting them to use AI in their work, then if they can answer the questions real time with AI to my, you know, to to my level of, of comfort, then maybe they are capable of doing the job pretty well. Right. And maybe like you were saying earlier, you know, it's not so much. Uh, like what is an ordinary per a person of ordinary skill in the art, right? Well, maybe it's now a person who is good enough at getting those answers, you know, augmented with their own because they're good at writing questions or they're, you know, they're good at interacting with AI. I could see how there could be some value in that connection, right? Right. That, that that's exactly uh, you. You've hit two two really important points. Uh, both both sides of that because I mean, some people are going to say, well, no, I don't think people in an interview process should be able to use anything else. And if you wanted, and then so having it in person, you know, could make sense. Uh, but you're right. I mean, AI tools and you having people leverage AI tools uh, is going to become increasingly an important part of our job. So you could say, well, if you have people who are not able to use AI, well, you know, maybe that's a deficit. Uh, it's a very good question. Uh, I've also seen this in the in the context of academia. So you have people who are using ChatGPT to draft very good quality papers. And, and it's like, you know, uh, and a lot of grading uh, psychologically comes down to how well is these things, ideas presented. And ChatGPT does a very good job of uh, writing. It's, it's very clean. Uh, so you could definitely, uh, we, we see some uh, issues with that. And so it, it may be the same thing that you may be able to say, well, you know, we might not be able to do, uh, you say, oh yeah, take this home and work on it. We may have to say, oh, you've got to be working on this in person in front of, of the instructor in order to do it. So the, the same uh, same issue. And I've also heard it's like, kind of like the uh, they take the battlefield one step further. There's also systems that are, are then saying, well, what if we, and it's, say in the academic context, have an instructor use a tool that can recognize writing that was generated? 
and as opposed to a human generated. And so they've actually got tools that can do that relatively well too. So then you say, oh, so now let's create a system that can spoof the systems that detecting it. So you've got a kind of a this this warfare, and I don't know how how far that will go. Uh, uh, but it but it is a, a very it's an important question, and and I think it's a very important. Um, policy question about about what we think is is important so uh I, I'm, I'm careful not to go too far in you know the policy question because i think a lot of it's like well technologically we can do one thing or another uh, but ultimately that's you know what the policy are is kind of the uh you know that's that means that requires human consensus on that to to bring this back a little bit to daily applications an ai algorithm is only as good as the data that it's trained with so are there any ethical or social issues that we should be concerned about in terms of what the data set is for when we're using it in a work setting or when we're using it for hiring purposes, less from the scientific standpoint, but something else that might be used outside of the USPTO setting? Yes. And and um, your, your point about uh, it's only as good as the training set. And in, in some ways, it gives us the opportunity to create a training set that's perhaps even better. And that's one of the things I thought about is like, we, we all have, uh, I'm just thinking of like a hiring context. Um, we all have biases. We, we try to pretend that we don't, but it's like we do. We all have biases. A lot of those biases are not apparent to us. We don't even know about them. Uh, so they just kind of uh, show up in, in ways that we don't see. Whereas for an AI system, we could train it using the data that we want and make it trained in a way so that it actually has uh, you know, has less bias. It's also the case if we're not careful, if, if we just say, oh, we'll just give it the same stuff that I'm using, then we could end up training it so that it end up having exactly the same biases that we have. So it's actually a very important question about we, we have to be thinking very hard about what data we use uh, to train the system. It's very important because it, it could end up being better than us in terms of, uh, you know, being unbiased or it could be worse. Then that can also lead to, you know, disagreements between people because some people could say, well, uh, well, I want this or I want that. So uh, the training data is, is critical. And I, I think that that's, um, we, we have to, rather than just saying, oh, we'll, we'll just give it everything and it'll figure it out, uh, is, is not the right answer. The, the right answer is it's like we have to we have to be thinking about what our goal is and make sure that we provide the right training to achieve that that goal. Uh, so I, I think that that's that's essential, really important. I have one more thing I've just been thinking about. So one of my interns was doing a little presentation on AI and she asked it to write a patent claim on a pencil. And it looks like a claim, right? Um, but it sort of didn't know how to identify the inventive concept, right? And, and I think that that makes a certain amount of sense because claims should be to something new and AI is inherently looking at the entire body of, you know, old stuff to come up with something. But could you use, could we, patent practitioners here in this room, write a claim that we think covers, you know, the inventive concept and feed it into an AI tool that could pretty much like write the specification for us, um, and and uh, you know, do the other pieces that are connected with it. If we entered the right original claim or information, 
<laughs> yeah, and, and I, I think that that's that's exactly right because one of uh, so in, in terms of having uh, an AI system generate a, a new claim from scratch, that that's actually a weakness of, of the AI system. I actually uh, heard from a, a person the other day who was a, an expert on this and saying that that AI systems are. Uh, have a difficulty of explaining how they're doing what they're doing or why they're doing it. So for them, it's just like, oh, it's a pencil. Therefore, it's just a, you know, so there's no differentiating what the inventor's parts are. So, and that's something that uh, the, the the AI systems currently are, are way behind where we are. I mean, they're still way behind. Uh, I think they'll eventually catch up, but but there's a little way to go. Um, uh, but the second part about drafting a patent application, if you can uh, provide, say, a very good claims describing something, then I think we're probably close to actually having an AI system be able to generate a, a reasonable specification. But in, in the same way I spoke earlier about saying, rather than being a battle between humans and an AI system, it's, it's look at this as a um, working together to get the best possible results. And so I think it's actually an iterative process where a person would say, generate the initial set of claims. It might not be a perfect set of claims. Have an AI system generate a, a first draft at the spec. Person reviews that, finds the parts that are not written, you know, it does, it's missing some essential things. You add to it and maybe at that point then figure out how to adapt the claims a little further. And then have the have the AI system take that all of all of that as input and generate another draft. And and I think that in a process like that, after a few iterations, you could end up having a very good uh, quality application. And, and so I think we're going to get there relatively soon. And so uh, I I think it's something that we, we shouldn't just assume that AI is not going to participate in this. It, it will. And I think it's important for us to be thinking about. Uh, uh, getting tools that that can do this, and an essential element of this, I, I, in my view, is the it, it's got to be iterative. Uh, and AI, so there are some systems I know of today that you can, if you draft a perfect claim, it can then draft you know uh, some other parts of the specification. Uh, but if you have to go back and edit the claims then it's going to build something brand new from scratch. And so that's not very good. So in order to be effective, it's got to be able to utilize the whole thing and iterate uh, from that. So more more evolutionary rather than just uh, assume that a person can draft perfect claims from the outset and and have a, have some, I mean, I don't, I don't know if there's ever been an instance where I've drafted perfect claims from the outset. It's like, it's always, I learn more as I go along. And so, so I think that assumption is just wrong. So, so as long as it can iterate, I, I think that we'll, we'll get that. And, and I think it's 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 not that far off. And so, I think people really need to be thinking about how they're going to leverage AI soon because this is going to be uh, essential, uh, particularly as the um, uh, budgets for drafting new applications are 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 getting uh, tighter. Whereas, uh, so. You'd better figure out how to use AI to to do that. Well, David, thank you for joining Elizabeth and I today and giving us a lot to think about in terms of the future of AI, the issues that we're going to face, what the USPTO needs to be considering and hopefully is considering, and um, giving us a uh, a splash of cold water that we need to continue to up our our skills game for the inevitable uh, march of AI toward drafting patent applications for us. Hopefully we can have you back again 
on the podcast for a quick update. And otherwise, I hope everyone today continues to listen to update their toolbox and uh, stay sharp as AI becomes more and more common. Thank you both. I, I appreciate having the time to, to speak with you today. Yeah, thanks so much. This was really great. Can't wait for the next time we get you on. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Semi-Interesting Podcast. You can find more episodes wherever you get your podcasts, including YouTube. And if you enjoyed the episode, we always appreciate five-star reviews. While we talked about legal issues, none of the information shared during this podcast is intended to be legal advice. If you have any questions about information we cover or ideas for a future episode, feel free to contact me or the other attorneys at Hodgson Russ. You can find contact information at www.hodgsonruss.com.